um, do uh, art, and they put it on the in the walls of the school, and and they know that um, on Friday somebody's going to announce who the winner is, and the best, and, and you know, there's talk. Will it be mine, or at least the thoughts? Maybe not always the talk. The disciples were talking about it because it tells us in the Bible that John, uh, Peter, tried to get John to ask Jesus who it is, who is this person that's going to betray him, and then in verse 27. We see that Satan entered into Judas, and he was dismissed from the room with Jesus' words, What thou doest, do quickly. In the upper room still, and in the conversations between then and when they left, and I don't have a good understanding for sure, but when John 14, 15, 16, and 17 all happened, did it all take place in the upper room before Jesus went to the Garden of Eden? I'm not 100% sure. I didn't look into that. But it was in sometime in that time after Jesus washed his disciples' feet and before he went to the Garden that he told them, and we see it, we understand it now that we read it, but he told them that I'm just going to be with you for a little bit, just a little while yet, and then I'm going to leave. And you're not going to see me anymore. But I'll send a comforter. He'll, he'll, he'll be with you. Peter didn't like that thought so well. And he declared vehemently that he's going to go with Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, I'm going there too. I'll go with you all the way, even if it means giving up my life. And Jesus, that we know happened in the upper room yet. And Jesus foretold of Peter's denial then, as I was already mentioned, John, we have John chapters 14 through 17, lots of teaching from Jesus, words of comfort, words of hope, um, and how he, it, what he was setting out for the disciples and how they were to live. <clears throat> then we have that flurry of events from the time Jesus left to the garden, and, and, and he prayed and sweat the drops. Uh, sweat as it were drops of blood the arrest and the trials and I think some of you covered some of this in your Sunday school uh, lesson this morning the book of Mark says that at some point they all forsook him just as Jesus was being arrested they all forsook him according to Mark's account it's obvious that at some point in time Peter and John came back because of some of the rest of the story where we see they, they knew what was going on and then in Luke, we have Luke 22, we have Peter's, the prof, Jesus' prophecy of Peter's denial coming true. And just imagine with me the, the, the thoughts that were going through these disciples' mind. We'll get into some of this a little bit later as well um, as I catch up with some of the rest, some of these things um, in a little bit, but... This Jesus that they were following, that they were giving their lives for, following day after day for maybe three years, was being arrested and taken away, out of control, out of their hands. It's just a total chaotic scene. Back and forth between Pilate and Caiaphas and the high priest. And it's in Luke 22 where Jesus is before the high priest, and apparently it was chilly enough, maybe it was because it was dark, and they had lit a fire to warm themselves, and Peter's standing around the fire warming himself, and you know the story. How three different people came to, to Peter and said, hmm, you're one of them, aren't you? 
One went so far as to say your, your speech betrays you. And Peter denied it. The third time he denied it vehemently. And you know the story how Jesus looked at him. There was eye contact made between Jesus and Peter. However that all took place, I don't know. But there was eye contact made. And there was volumes spoken in that moment of eye contact because Peter was smitten. And Luke tells us that he went outside and he wept bitterly. Then we have Jesus being led to Golgotha. This is after the trial now. And a great company of people, the Bible tells us, following him, weeping and lamenting. And you wonder what went through those people's minds as well. As Jesus was being led up, this, this looks like it's, it's coming to an end. This is just, this, this can't be. Some of us had situations where we were in situations that were difficult. And we just, you know, how did we get here? Why? What? If only we would have done this. Or what if that would have happened? Could we have avoided this? But we know what happened. We know the story. He was hung on the cross. He was nailed to the cross. And just before he died, there was three hours of darkness. What do you think happened then? What do you think was going through the, the people's minds then? Around this time of the day, three hours of darkness, blackness. In the spiritual world, I believe the sins of the people was being put on Jesus, and God couldn't stand to see it, and so he covered it with darkness. And by noon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, It is finished, and it was so that moment, that situation was so monumental that there was an earthquake. The graves opened. People who had been buried were walking around town. The veil of the temple was rent twain from the top to the bottom. That was an intricately, intricately woven veil, not easily to be torn. But it was torn from top to the bottom. Can you imagine if they had had social media in those days, the buzz? What would have been going on? What would people have been saying? And I venture to guess that for the next three days, three nights, Satan was having a grand old victory celebration. He thought he got it. He thought he won. But he didn't know. By nightfall, Joseph of Arimathea had begged the body of Jesus and placed it in a tomb. It's interesting to me that I think it's Luke's account says the group of women followed him to the tomb and they beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. They, they were paying attention to the details. See, they had something going on in their minds. They were going to come back and they were going to get together some spices and some ointments to embalm Jesus and come back later and do this. It was, I picture it was getting to be nightfall and the Sabbath was coming on and they needed... They, some scholars say that there, there, could have, there would have been provisions in the Jewish law that they could have embalmed his body on the Sabbath day, but because of this situation, because of the, the, the volatility, is that a word, of this situation, they decided, apparently decided, maybe even because it was a Passover, they decided to stay at home for that Sabbath day and then come back later to embalm his body. So they went home, the Bible tells us, and they prepared spices and ointments to embalm him. To me, this evidence is that they had no thought of him rising from the dead. The resurrection was not something that was in their minds. 
because they were going to go back and embalm him. As darkness settled on Jerusalem, everybody returned to their homes to observe the Sabbath and the Passover. Probably most of us here have had that experience where we've walked away from a grave after the burial's finished, the last chunk of dirt's been thrown, the grave is covered, it's done, and you walk home, and just a host of things that go through your mind. Just, just stuff that goes through your mind as you, you think about this and you wonder about this death. There's been young, there's been old. Can you imagine what these people were thinking as they went home that night, pondering the death of Jesus? Really? How had it come to this? I wonder how well they slept that night. The time of Passover was the next day, and that was normally a time of celebration, a time of great joy, as they commemorated their deliverance from Egypt. But I wonder what this Passover celebration was like for them. Whatever it was, Passover came, Passover went, Sabbath was over and early. And I find it interesting that all the gospel gospel accounts, uh, all four gospels, when they mention the, the women going back to the tomb on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, it mentions early in some way, in the morning, just at daybreak, very early, one writer says. These three women, I'm figuring there was three, I may be wrong, went back to the tomb. I wonder how that walk was. Do you think they walked briskly with purpose and with intent? We're going to get there. We're going to do this. Do you think they walked slowly and contemplatively and meditatively and thinking and pondering over the events of the past? They were ready to embalm his body. Do you think they walked with a nervous anticipation, wishing they could have done this sooner? We do know from Scripture that they talked about how they were going to get into the tomb. They were concerned about this stone that had been put over the tomb. and how It was large, and how, how were they going to get it away? And we know the story, how they got there, and the stone was already removed. Triggering another whole range of thoughts and emotions. What is going on? The tomb is open. The stone's away. Matthew says the women went quickly with fear and joy. I'm sorry, this was after they went. They ran back to the disciples. Luke's account in Luke 24 says that the angels asked the women if they remember what Jesus had said. I found that interesting. Luke 24 verse 7 Well, a few verses before that, they were saying, do you remember what he said? He said that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and a third day rise again. Verse 8 says, and they remembered his words. And they remembered his words. And I wonder what all that they remembered or thought, what they thought about during that time. They went quickly back to find the disciples, and we can gather from that that the disciples were together somewhere Peter and John heard the word and they ran. The Bible tells us they ran to the tomb. 
Others didn't, who heard it didn't believe it right away. Some said it seems like an idle tale. It can't be true. You're just making this up. Thomas refused to believe it. He said, until I can see his hands and see his side and put my fingers into the holes, I'll believe it. The chief priests, can you imagine what they were thinking? They paid large money, the Bible tells us, big money, to, to the guards to fabricate a story to cover their backs. And when you stop and think about the whole range of activity and emotions and thoughts and that may have been going through people's minds these four days, these past four days, it, it's exhausting to think about that. I'd like to focus in a, a more on the account now in Luke 24. And if you have your Bibles you open there, you can, you can follow along here. In Luke 24, looking then at the Emmaus walk, as these two men... And I know I skimmed over the story, and there was lots more about Peter going into the sepulcher, stooping down, and he holding back John moving right on in to confirm that the, the body actually was going. And now in, in Luke 24, verses, starting in verse 13, you have the story of the two men that were on the way to Emmaus. And I wonder, where were they going? Why were they going to Emmaus? I didn't study that. I, didn't, I don't have any... Um, imagination or surmising as to what they were doing. But they, we know that they were going away from Jerusalem. It seems like the activity was over as far as they knew, and they were heading back. Was it heading back home? Where were they going? I don't know. They were going away from Jerusalem. The distance between Jerusalem and Emmaus is approximately seven or eight miles. And they were talking. They were talking. They were talking about what had happened. And can you imagine what that conversation was like? All kinds of Back and forth. It really happened. Really happened. And then all of a sudden this third person joins them. And their eyes are still closed. They don't know who that third person is. And and the third person says, so what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, you know, there's been this Jesus. And and he was crucified. There's, there's been this stuff going on in town. Don't you? Are you a stranger? Don't you? I mean, even the, where have you been? And you don't know what's been going on around town t- these last days. And Jesus said, "What things? Tell me about it." And so they expounded to him, and they told him what all went on and what all was taken. How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. And notice verse 21. But we trusted. We trusted that it had been he which would have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things are done. You know, that was significant to them because in the Jewish tradition, if a person was dead three days, then he was dead. I mean, we don't bury people thinking that they're alive, but there was just this tradition among them that after three days, he was, uh, that was like the final, it was reality. The person is now dead. It's now three days since these things happened, but some of the women from our group claimed they went to the tomb and it's empty. It made us astonished, it says in verse 22. And they came back and told the disciples, and they said that they saw a vision of angels and that the angels said that he's alive. And certain of them, it says in verse 24, referring to Peter and John, went back 
And they found it the way the women said. The tomb's empty. He's gone. He's not there. They didn't see him. They say he's alive, but we didn't see him yet. And then Jesus, the third person in this story, went and he told them and he expounded to them, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things that concerning about concerning himself. And then it seems like they got to getting close to the end of their journey as far as they were planning to go, at least. And Jesus, this third person, indicated that he's going to move on. He's going to keep traveling. He said, no, stay with us. Stay with us. And so he walked, he went in with them, and something about verse 30, when he took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to them, opened their eyes, and they realized that it was Jesus, and that quickly he was gone. Disappeared, vanished out of their sight. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked, they said. They had some more stuff to talk about. We saw him, but now he's gone. Where did he go? I find it interesting that they turned around. That same hour, they immediately they turned around and they made the journey back to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven gathered together and them that were with him, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And that would be a study in itself. How many times in this story that Simon is singled out and Peter is singled out? Jesus' sudden appearance then they're in the, in the upper room there, and, and Jesus all of a sudden shows up, and it terrifies them. Verse 36, and as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith to them, Peace be unto you. In this account as well, Jesus confirms his physical existence by telling them, verses 38 through 42, Touch me. See my hands, see my feet. Touch me. And he concluded it by breaking bread with them Well. He took a piece of fish and honey and ate. A spirit doesn't eat, but a physical being eats. And he was proving that he, his physical existence was in fact true. And in verse 41, while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have you here any meat? A picture of what was going on in their minds. They for. He was there, but it was almost more than they could comprehend. It was more than they could believe, more than they could take in, more than they could absorb. But he was there. It was a combination of unbelief and joy and wonder. And in verse 45, let me back up a little bit. I wonder then if, on from, from Jesus' standpoint, if he wasn't sort of, enjoying himself. Um, he had talking with these two men on the road to Emmaus and then explaining to them all the prophecies that said this is going to happen and, and then at the end opened their eyes and, and all of a sudden they got it. And now he's meeting with the disciples, shows up out of nowhere, it seems like, and here again expounds to them And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. 
And then verse 45, then open he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And it's easy to quickly read over that verse as part of the story, but this, brothers and sisters, is a monumental, is a pivotal moment in the life of the New Testament, New Testament church. Then open he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, and they were never the same after that. We see that in their lives. And then he challenges them in verses 46, 47, and 48. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. They carried a responsibility. They carried a treasure, if you would. I'm not quite sure what word to put to it. In their responsibility as having been witnesses of these things. And that's some of what we talked about in our Sunday school lesson today. That later people coming on could look back and say, it happened. There's witnesses. We know it happened. And I'm going to have to um, shorten this. There's three yet things yet. I'll, I'll look over quickly uh, that the significance of the resurrection, the historical significance, the spiritual significance, and the future significance. <clears throat> I've already alluded to some, uh, to the first two um, with what I've said. The historical significance of the resurrection, Jesus told them here in Luke 24, 44, I told you this is going to happen. And I think the significance for us today is he always keeps his word. I told you it will happen. It had to happen. Even when we cannot believe it, even when we don't understand it, if he said it, it will happen and we can believe it. And trust it, even if we don't understand it. It was written about in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. And so it needed to be fulfilled. And this affirms the fulfillment of Jesus' resurrection, affirms, confirms all prophecies about this in Scripture. And, and, and gives us faith and confidence that his word is true. And then there's also the side of just from a purely historical perspective. The record of the Bible is true. I have a book that um, picked up some time ago, and in the uh, re- the resurrection factor it was written by um, Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was, if I'm not mistaken, he was a college student in the '60s during the. Uh, some of you would remember the the riots of the, in the colleges in the '60s, and and Josh McDowell was not uh, a Christian, and he set out to prove. He was intrigued by this group of Christians that would meet together and have Bible studies, and he was intrigued by their person, by their character. And so he started following them and spending time with them, and then he was determined to prove that what they were saying wasn't true. In the end, uh, when he researched the, the historical evidence for the resurrection, he, he became converted and in turn wrote a book about an interesting book um, he mentions in that book of, of critics who've tried to prove it wrong only to become converted. Lawyers 
literary geniuses, and even atheists have concluded that there is, from a purely historical perspective, that there's plenty of evidence to prove that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. One, one atheist, I think it was C.S. Lewis, that was, was talking with him, and, and the atheist was in a regretful way saying, I, I have to admit it, it's true, but he walked away from it. Um, a harsh man. Even C.S. Lewis, his testimony of coming to Christ, was determined to prove that Christianity is wrong. Um, and he re- writes of his conversion, uh, not this, I'm putting it in my own words, he was one of the most dejected people that became a Christian that night when he finally prayed and he, he committed his heart to God. He had to admit that it was true. And that was from a, a, a literary and a historical perspective. And then there's the spiritual significance. We talked about in a Sunday school lesson how the Sadducees teach uh, that there is no resurrection. In Jewish history, there's been varied beliefs concerning a literal resurrection from the, je- from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the dead put all that to rest. It's true. It happened. It will happen uh, again for all of us when he comes again. It can happen, we know, because it happened once. Because Jesus did it. It confirms that there is life after death. 1 Corinthians 15 in our lesson, Sunday school lesson today, verse 14. Without it, our faith is vain. Our preaching is vain. It's the anchor. It's the bedrock of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Without it, Paul and others who saw him would be false witnesses. And, you know, if, if one or two people only would have seen him, we could argue, we could say that they made up a story, but there was more. There was the whole, all 11 of the disciples, and then there was a group of up to 500 men, Paul writes about in our Sunday school lesson today, that saw him. There's plenty of evidence uh, for his resurrection. <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus gives power to have victory over sin, as I've read in Romans 6, verses 1 through 6. And there's much more could be said. Then there's also the future significance of the resurrection. His resurrection gives Jesus, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, gives him supreme authority over all rule and any authority and any power that can exist. Because he rose again from the dead, he gives him supreme authority. I found it interesting in our Sunday school lesson today that he is anticipating, it gives us the idea that Jesus is anticipating turning that over to God. I can't quickly lay my eyes on it, and that's fine. Uh, Study it in our Sunday school lesson today. The resurrection of Jesus gives us power and hope in the midst of persecution. It gives us hope of a life hereafter. 1 Corinthians 15 says we're going to be, that the, we'll be, we, were, we are sown in corruption, but we're going to be raised in incorruption. And, you know, we have to be raised in incorruption because our corruptible bodies can't see God. We can't stand in the presence of God in these corruptible bodies but when we're raised when we get our new bodies they'll be incorruptible and we can see him and we can stand in his presence and that's all because 
and solidified by the, G- the resurrection of Jesus. I found verses 51 and 52 in 1 Corinthians 15 interesting as well. 51 says, Behold, I show, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And then verse 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That gives us hope, brothers and sisters. That gives us something to look forward to. <clears throat> Death will lose the final battle, and we, can have, we have assurance of that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with a few quotes, not original by me, and unfortunately I didn't keep track of where I found them, so I don't even know who to accredit them to. This first one, I think, comes from Josh McDowell out of his book, The Resurrection Factor. He says, the historical fact of the resurrection is the very basis for the truth of Christianity. To put it simply, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Christianity rise or fall together. One cannot stand, one cannot be true without the other. And then this, when I open my Bible to Psalm 23, I know that the Lord Jesus is my shepherd because he lives. I know that he leads me beside the still waters because he lives. I know he restores my soul because he lives. I know he leads me in paths of righteousness because he lives. I know he is with me in the presence of mine enemies because he lives. I know he is with me in the valley experiences of life because he lives. I do not fear death because he lives. I find comfort in knowing because he lives. My cup runs over because he lives. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life because he lives. And someday I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because he lives. Yes, yea, and all of God's inspired and holy word means so much more to us because he lives. And one last comment. Just read it this morning in the Daily Bread. Yale Professor Jaroslav Belikan, something like that, is quoted to have said on his deathbed, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not, nothing else matters. Let's kneel for prayer.